Amen. Well, good morning, church. Our sermon text today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, as we continue on in our Sermon on the Mount series. The text reads like this, and you can follow along on your screen here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, these verses that we just read are the uh, bookends, basically, of this famous section that we've been going through in the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And really, it's the bookends because you can see that Beatitude number 1 in 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, starts with the kingdom of heaven. And then here, in verse 10, we have this ending again with the kingdom of heaven. Now, the eight Beatitudes that we've been going through these last number of weeks and months really are incredible because they paint a portrait of what the Christian life is supposed to look like in a very short and succinct manner. Just a handful of sentences give you a very vivid picture of what a Christian is supposed to look like. And this is very different, the image at least that it paints, from what we generally admire in the world. Now, the world looks at this and has something different to say. The world says, no, blessed are the confident, those who are strong in themselves. Whereas Jesus says here, no, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, those who admit their spiritual bankruptcy before him. The world says, blessed are the assertive, those who know how, know how to go out and get what they need. Whereas Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, no, blessed are the meek. That is, those who wait and trust in confidence in a God who works and fights for those who are willing to throw themselves on Him. The world says to us, especially in North America, blessed are you when you're trouble-free, when life is good and you don't have any health complications and you have the vacations that you like. And Jesus, speaking to his followers, goes the exact opposite direction and says, You know what blessed is? blessedness is? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, with regards to the word persecution, what exactly does that mean? It's not a word that we use very often, you know, in our culture, for instance. So, for example, I've heard the word used sort of in the context of what's going on in Vancouver right now. Uh, just in the last few days and weeks, the Vancouver Police Department has been tracking the rise of hate crimes or assaults against Asians here in our city ever since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. That is the systematic abuse of a particular group of people simply because of their race by others. Now, if you had an Asian friend who got spat on by someone and then told to go back to China and take their coronavirus, their Chinese virus, back with them, what, what would you say to that person? Would you say to them, it's okay. Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. So in actuality, you're, you're blessed. I, I don't think you would say that 
And the question is, why? Why? The reason that you would not say that is because the beatitude that's given here is not a blessing for general persecution or abuse, but the beatitude is actually qualified. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The last part is really important. Now, in order to make sense of this, we need to understand what does righteousness' sake mean? And I think the answer to this is actually found in verse 11. Now, you notice that all the Beatitudes, the way that they start, they began with, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And then here when you get to verse 11, actually it doesn't say blessed are those, but it changes, and it says blessed are you. So I think that it's clear here that verse 11 isn't something new, but it's an expansion of verse 10. Hence the sort of parallel structure. Let's read it again. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So again, you read here in verse 11, you realize that the blessing that's given is also qualified. Parallels verse 10. It ends with, on my account. In other words, this is about for Jesus' sake. So my point here in all this, in pointing out the parallel, is that verse 11 and 10 really are synonymous. For righteousness' sake should be compared with on my account or for Jesus' sake. So this isn't a blessing that's given to victims of hate or racial crime or governmental oppression in general, but rather to those who are targeted slandered and mistreated on account of their walk with Jesus Christ. All because they're followers of Jesus and they hold to a lifestyle and a mindset that is set in opposition to the thinking of this world. And therefore, they earn the world's hatred. Now, a question you might ask at this point is, why would anyone hate Christians? You know, for some people, they would say Christians are amongst the nicest people that I know. So why hate on Christians? I mean, from what we just read, even in the Beatitudes, Christians are called to be peacemakers. They're called to be merciful. They're called to be pure in heart. I mean, who could hate somebody who has these attributes about them? And the answer to that is because behind all of those things is a worldview that believes that at the very root of true, lasting peace, mercy, goodness, or anything else in this world that is ultimately great, all that is undergirded and relies on the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what Christians have to think. And when you bring in Jesus to the picture, this becomes incredibly offensive to people. For example, take peacemaking, for instance. You know, there's a story told by Ravi Zacharias, who is a Christian apologist, about how he went to the Middle East to help broker peace between Palestine and Israel and engage in some of the talks there. And while he was there, he actually was able to meet with one of the founders of Hamas. Now, this founder of Hamas had spent years in jail uh, for his activities, and also he had lost many of his own children to suicide bombings. And at the end of their time, Ravi had just one opportunity to ask him one question. And so he said to him, 
Sheik, you and I may never see each other again, so I want you to hear from me. A little distance from here is a mountain upon which Abraham went 5,000 years ago to offer his son. You may say the son was one, I may say it's another. Let's not argue about that. He took his son up there, and as the axe was about to fall, God said, Stop! And I said, Do you know what God said after that? And he shook his head. And I said, God said, I myself will provide. And he nodded his head. And I said, very close to where you and I are sitting, Sheikh, is a hill. And 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise and brought his own son. And the axe did not stop this time. He sacrificed his own son, I said. Sheikh, I just want you to hear this. Until you and I receive the son God has provided... We'll be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for many of the wrong reasons. Do you see the difference there? See, the Christian says the only way that we'll be able to stop the blood shed is by looking to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's ultimately how peace talks are going to work. See, if you confidently say that, and you believe that's the root behind ultimate things, you will be opposed. As people look at you and say, no, I don't agree. I don't agree with your assessment that everyone's a sinner. I don't agree that we need to have Jesus as the foundation. I don't even agree that we need to have Jesus in our lives in order for us to be good. See, the Christian worldview, rightly understood, following Jesus is absolutely threatening to the identity of the average North American. I mean, there's so many things in the Christian worldview that followers of Jesus practice in accordance with God's word that just are in opposition to the way that our world thinks about issues. For example, if you believe that sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman, you can be called old-fashioned, repressive, judgmental. If you work hard and don't slack like your colleagues do at work, your productivity will actually highlight their laziness and they might actually start to falsely accuse you of trying to be a suck-up or trying to get a promotion with your boss instead of actually acknowledging their own faults and they pass the blame to you. You know, if you're pro-life today, for example, and you oppose abortion, you will be mocked and reviled and even slandered as a hater of women's rights, perhaps a backwards religious fanatic even. What about our culture of religious pluralism and inclusivism? If you actually assert that Jesus Christ is the only way, really the truth and the life, and that there's no other way to God except through Him, you'll be viewed as narrow-minded, divisive, exclusive, certainly not the type of person that we want to be leading other people in a multicultural society. Especially since we know in a multicultural society that no religion or person knows the whole truth and only everyone has a part of the truth. So automatically, you're pushed to the side. What about our conduct? You know, if you're gentle with your words, 
You're honest. You refuse to cheat, lie, steal, or even to get revenge on other people in the workplace. You will actually hamper the plans of other people who don't agree with you and want to advance their careers or their companies through lies, revenge, and dishonesty. They can't have you spilling the beans on what they're doing, so either you go or they. See, the Christian life that is truly lived actually demands a response. And that's because Jesus demands a response. You can't get around it. Now, let me be very clear here that the persecution spoken about here is, and the blessing that comes with it is not, uh, does not apply when it comes to bad Christian behavior. So this is not saying, blessed are you who are persecuted or treated poorly because you deserved it or when you did bad. Like, if you get fired at work for sharing the gospel and doing this stealing time from your employer and being a very poor employee, that, 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 or just being plain rude at work, you can't say that's persecution and try to claim the blessings from this beatitude. You know, recently I was reading a website that contained uh, stories, just horror stories of restaurant workers uh, who were writing about church groups that would eat at their restaurants uh, after Sunday service. And some of the stories are really quite shocking. And they include things of like Christians yelling at restaurant workers, demeaning them, being incredibly demanding, telling servers that uh, they're going to hell for working on Sundays uh, instead of going to church. In one case, reading a, a bill that said, I give God 10%, so why should I tip you 15%? And I read about one manager who actually taught his employees that if you see a group Praying before a meal, you should automatically, in your head, deduct one-third off of your tip. You know, one waitress actually wrote a story about how a group of church ladies treated her poorly and then condemned her for her beliefs when she spoke to them. And the worst part about it is that at this time, she was actually grieving a friend's suicide and had been recommended to go to a local church for grief counseling. And she was just about to go, and then she realized that the church that she was recommended to go to was the very church that those ladies came from. And she writes how she decided not to go to church and visit it for the first time. And eventually, she got through the grief, she says, on her own, and she is so glad that she can sleep in on Sundays now. Now look at that. It's like, what a loss. That's terrible. Now, I'm not here to debate the legitimacy of tipping, nor am I saying that in a restaurant when things are bad, just stay completely quiet. That's not my point. What I'm saying here is that Christians are never permitted to be rude, ungracious, thoughtless in our words and in our deeds. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 to 32 says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, the things mentioned in this verse, like wrath, bitterness, and anger, these things rip down. And they grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption. They're incompatible with being a follower of Jesus Christ, ultimately speaking. 
And if you can't forgive, and this is an ongoing pattern in your life and you see nothing wrong with it, you really don't understand what Jesus Christ has done for you. Your friends, as you're listening to this, let me ask you the question. People were to look at your life, would they be offended by Christ Jesus' life? Or are they offended enough by just yours? Will people say, I'd never want to go to a church that you attend? It's a serious thing for us to do wrong and to sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, what the Bible is saying is that it's about being persecuted for righteousness' sake and not rudeness' sake. It's about being spurned on account of Jesus Christ and not because you're a crab. See, if you suffer because your heart and mind are absolutely saturated with Jesus and His purposes, then what Jesus is saying is this promise is for you. Now, I think it's important for us to note, as we think about persecution, that these verses actually here assume that persecution is normal for Christians. Note that in verse 11, for example, it doesn't say, blessed are you if they insult you, it just says when. In other words, verbal insults and lies about followers of Jesus are to be expected. And this actually matches what the rest of the New Testament assumes about the Christian life, including what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Text says this, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, Jesus wasn't just a teacher who taught good morals. Rather, he was an individual who declared himself to be God, said that he was the only way as well to the Father, died on the cross, rose again to resurrection life, all for the sake of our sins, to pay the debt that we could not pay for God and to give us the hope of an eternal life one day. If that's actually true about Jesus, you actually have to deal with it. And there's really only one of two ways to deal with it. Either you say, yes, Everything that he says about himself is true, and he really is Lord, and I'm going to bow the knee to him. Or you're going to have to say, no, he's a fraud. Something funny has happened here. And you need to show why he and his followers are wrong in order to justify your own lifestyle. You know, there's that old saying, right, that says, if you can't beat them, join them. I think in this case, it's actually the reverse. If you can't join them because you cannot accept what Jesus has to say about himself, then you have to beat them. So if you can't join them, then beat them. And whether you do this physically, as in some countries where Christians are violently persecuted, or whether you do it through verbal persecution, or using the culture against Christians, it's one and the same. And since the beginning of the church, Christians have endured all sorts of these kinds of attacks. You know, for example, if you look at the early church, for instance, Christians were accused of being cannibals who killed and ate babies at the Lord's Supper because 
they heard that they ate flesh and they drank the blood of Jesus, and so they must have been doing something absolutely gory at their Sunday gatherings. Untrue. Love feasts, for example, they were misconstrued as sexual orgies. Not true, again. Enemies of the state. Christians were accused of being this. Why? Because they wouldn't worship the emperor or the whole pantheon of Roman gods. What if the gods got angry and they decided to send a plague on the whole country because of these Christians who failed to worship them? You look at right now, you know, we're starting to lift these social distancing measures. I'm seeing pictures all over Facebook now of uh, people who are horrified at the crowds going to the beaches. Some are very, very upset. You think that's angry? Think of how angry the Romans would have been saying, you're not just threatening our economy, you're threatening our very lives as well. The gods could rain fire down on all of us. How dare you be such an opposer of the state? Get with the program, Christians. We have no idea the level of malevolence and contempt that people had for some of these early Christians. Why can't you just bow down to the emperors? What are you trying to prove? And they wouldn't. And the early Christians chose death instead. You know, in our increasingly secularized culture, Christians are becoming more and more marginalized. And I think it's entirely possible that these very sermons that you know, I'm preaching one day might be used against me in a court of law. That's why I actually agonize when I prepare sermons. It's very hard work for me. Painful. Why? Because because I don't want to get up and write and speak my own opinions, but I want to speak truths that are in line with the Word of God. And so that if I'm ever prosecuted one day and people ask me, Are these your words? Will you recant of them? I will say, yes and no. Yes, I did write them. But they are just reflections of God's thoughts. And you can verify this yourself by opening up a Bible. And if there's unsound teaching in any of this, I will gladly repent of that. But insofar as it accurately reflects the teachings of Jesus Christ, I cannot and I will not recant of these things. You know, friends who are listening here, How many of you have ever considered the cost of following Jesus? Some of you, I know, listening right now, actually coming from countries, places in the world where you actually have suffered for your faith and you risk death to become a Christian. Now, in North America, we don't face physical persecution, but we face a lot of cultural persecution. But all around the world, brothers and sisters face death every single day. North Korea, absolutely illegal to be a Christian. You could be sent to a labor camp if you do so and die. Somalia, Islam is the state religion and converting to any other religion is a criminal offense. The Islamic terrorist group, Al-Shabaab, has declared their intent basically to get rid of all the Christians in Somalia and they will kill people to enforce that. Countries like Iran, for instance, Persians who leave Islam can be hauled into a police station, interrogated, and potentially even killed as well. Now, the question for us is, how should we as Christians respond to this? Let's read verse 12 again. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
And you read this, Jesus' words here, and you say, am I, am I hearing this right? How is this possible? How can you say, Jesus, rejoice when you're actually in severe pain? Aren't those two mutually exclusive? Before we answer that question, do you realize just how unique this is? I don't know of any other system of thought or religion that teaches individuals to rejoice when they're suffering on account of their faith. In fact, many systems of thought in this world would argue for the opposite. Forget rejoicing. You get revenge instead. But revenge is so unchristian. So out of lines with the teachings of Jesus Christ that even our secular society that knows very little about Christianity and what we believe knows at least that Christians are not individuals who go out and get revenge. You know, in Vancouver, there's a very outspoken atheist by the name of Darwin Bedford. And he's advocated against all religions. And he wears shirts with taglines that say, Reality is better than Jesus. God is a scam. Or this one, If Jesus returns, kill him again. Now, when Mr. Bedford tried to wear another kind of shirt, two other kinds of shirts, actually, that said, Death to Allah and Zero Tolerance for Islam, he eventually had to stop wearing them due to public outrage here. And so he retired his shirts. But one of the comments on his public Facebook page is very insightful, and it reads this way. Darwin, just be careful. Stay alert and be on guard when you wear those shirts. Put it this way. Christians are far less likely to behead people for blasphemy. I don't know exactly what's in the Quran, but I do know that fanatic fundamental followers of Jesus, who not only read the Bible, but actually practice what he preached by following his two commandments, Matthew 22:34-40, might be provoked into turning the other cheek and praying for the salvation of your immortal soul. I know a lot of people like to think that all religions are the same, but that would be like equating Buddhists with Aztecs. Some are more toxic than others. You know, I, I read that, I smiled, and I laughed. See, this is exactly why it's safe to attack Christians. Because everybody knows that our faith is grounded in love. Even love for those who mistreat us, persecute us. Right? Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who despise you. Don't repay evil for evil. Forgive others their trespasses. You read the New Testament, you will never find a command in there for Christians to go and get even or to fight those who fight against you. But it says, leave justice to God. So the next time you want to hammer a Christian... You better be very, very careful. Because if you persecute them enough, they might just end up loving you and praying for your soul. Yeah, it's crazy. So unique about Christianity. But back to my original question. How can Christians rejoice in the midst of persecution? There's actually two reasons given here in our text, and they're also the first of two of six points, six application points that I'd like us to consider about persecution. Okay, number one. Persecution for Christ's sake is evidence that you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. All right? 
Jesus says in the text here, your reward is great in heaven. So what is persecution? Persecution is a signpost on this treacherous road of life that indicates to you that you're traveling even in the right direction, even when it doesn't feel like it. Right? I love the words of that song from City of Light, Christ is mine forevermore, that I think accurately capture this. It says, minor tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that comes from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. See, the road of faith is actually terrifying to look at with just fleshly eyes and not the eyes of faith because all you'll see is the dangers and you won't see the good shepherd standing there and leading you through the valley. See, through the evil of persecution, God speaks and he assures you that you're his child. See, it's like a GPS that says to you, like, continue on through the valley of the shadow of death for five kilometers or five years. Then take the first right into the king's meadows where there'll be refreshment and fuel and food for your soul. See, see, the broken, potholed, narrow road with God's directions is far better to take than the smooth and easy, broad highway that so many people like to travel on that has no markings indicating that you're heading to the heavenly city, but in fact it contains warning signs that tell you you're going in the wrong direction. You know, Jesus actually warns in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. See, persecution, whether it's cultural, physical, economic, loss of friends, or even dear family members who dislike your Christianity, as painful as it is, is God's way of reminding you that you're going the right way, you're walking the king's road, and your reward is great in heaven. So rejoice! Second reason, second thing that we can learn about persecution here. Persecution, number two, for Christ's sake, testifies that you have a godly heritage in Jesus Christ. The text says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the Bible actually records numerous Old Testament prophets who are persecuted for their faith. You remember Jeremiah, who preached the word of God. He was actually thrown down a well. Elijah had to run away into the barren wilderness to escape Queen Jezebel's wrath. You read, for instance, about Zechariah, who was the son of Jehoiada, the priest. For preaching the word of God, he was actually stoned to death. You know, Daniel was a captive Israelite in Babylon who outlived and actually served numerous kings, including Nebuchadnezzar. And he was so competent at his work that he made all the others jealous about them, and that's what led them to trying to get him thrown into the lion's den. And you read in Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, what it says about Daniel. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, 
but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. That's a remarkable statement. Could somebody look at your whole life and say, There's nothing we have against you except for your relationship with your God. See, when you're persecuted on account of Christ, can you rejoice? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Jesus says you can. Why? Because it shows that you stand in line with the faithful prophets of old. See, maybe your parents are gone or you've been disowned because of your walk with Jesus Christ, whatever it is. Do you know what persecution shows you? It shows you, actually, that you stand in line with the prophets of old, that you have a spiritual heritage and lineage. You have a Father who is in heaven. You have a multitude of Christian brothers and sisters all around the globe who are your new eternal family, in whom the blood of Jesus Christ runs in their veins as it does you. And though your spiritual ancestors, the prophets, were ridiculed for their faith, did not God vindicate them in His Word? Aren't they those, now we look back and say they were righteous, even though they went against the cultural grain and the cultural milieu of their day? And if God vindicated them as faithful, will He not do the same for you? See, persecution may take from you all of your earthly wealth and your friends, but it demonstrates actually that you have a greater eternal wealth and family. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, you can follow on your screen. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's an incredible promise that's given. Number three. Persecution for Christ's sake is a joyful privilege as you imitate Jesus Christ. Two verses I'd like to show. Acts 5 verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, very similar. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. Do you realize what persecution is? Persecution is not a demotion. But it's a promotion by God who gives us the privilege of reflecting His Son to the watching world. You know, I love the story of Hamid from Iran told in the Voice of the Martyrs radio in 2018. Basically, after an accident, his story goes, it kind of ended his hopes for a soccer career, and he cries out to God for help. And one day, he as he's crying out and he's praying to God who he thinks doesn't really know who he is, he sees a chat room that has the message, God is love, on it. And he can't grasp the idea how God is love because he knows that in the Iranian revolution, religious leaders basically killed his family for their political views. So how are the two compatible? God can't be love, he thought. But after three months of reading the Bible and chatting with these people, he realized he wasn't a Muslim anymore. And one day while he was crying out to God and saying, God, just please show me a sign that you're real. Help me. 
That day when he was walking, he said he walked by a sign, a big sign that said actually, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life from John chapter 14, verse 6. And he was flabbergasted by that. He said, wow, that, that is a sign. That, that is a real, literal sign. Hamid became a Christian and he got kicked out by his family onto the streets for his conversion. And though he became homeless, he says that he absolutely loved it because it was an honor for him to bear the name of Jesus Christ even though his family gave up on him and he faced death. Hamid's story goes that he later became a preacher and became an underground church planter in Iran. You know, friends, could you say, as Hamid did, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, rang true for him and for many other people as well. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, how, as a Christian, can you joyfully accept the plundering of your property? I mean, the house that you own is gone. You're now homeless because of Jesus Christ. How can you handle that? How can you have joy? Because you know that if you're being persecuted on account of Jesus Christ and you are representing Him to the world, you belong to heaven. That's where your citizenship is. And you can rejoice because it is clear that your reward is great in heaven. And that's far better real estate than anything else in the world. It's a privilege to be able to bear the name of Jesus Christ, to show that you live for greater, truer, and eternal realities. Number four, persecution for Christ's sake emboldens other Christians in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul understood this. He went to jail as he wrote to the Philippians, and yet he had absolutely unshakable joy. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, I, I love this verse, right? Because you hear what it's saying. Paul actually calls his imprisonment a good thing. Why? Because the prison guards, he says, got to hear about Jesus. See, Roman jails are scary places. But as Christians watched God give Paul joy in the midst of his persecution in jail, they actually grew confident, it says here, in the Lord and were bold to preach more about Jesus Christ. See, friends, don't ever think that God brings persecution into your life to crush you. Quite the opposite, actually. If it's actually His hand that allows persecution to come your way, it must be so that He can actually supply you grace and joy in the time of your need and also bring encouragement to others to stand firm in the Lord. Persecution is a gracious gift from the Lord. Though man means it for evil, he has good purposes for it. Number five. 
Persecution for Christ's sake results in intimacy with Jesus Christ. When Paul was about to die in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, he said this, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. See, are you lonely as a result of persecution? Now, how many saints in Christian history have found great solace and comfort from God in their loneliness as they watch Jesus walk closer to them than even a brother would? You know, in the midst of horrific trials, there's a kind of a sweetness of knowing the presence of Jesus in a way you could never know them when you're surrounded by people. You can feel His very personal, infinite love, His sustaining grace, His boundless mercy, and His immense power to help those who desperately need Him in your day of trouble. It's kind of like when all the other lights of the world are turned off, one light continues to shine, and you appreciate it so much more for the light that it gives. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace for their faith, and yet didn't Nebuchadnezzar exclaim when he looked into that fiery furnace, isn't there four in the furnace there? And the one walking around in that thing looks like the son of the gods? Yes. In the midst of the furnace is oftentimes where you find Jesus Christ walking with you and experiencing the heat. Number six. Persecution for Christ's sake is used by God to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, in 1665, when the Great Plague of London actually broke out, the official Anglican state church had been persecuting the godly Puritan pastors and actually made it illegal for them to preach. However, when people actually started to really die of this plague, all the government state clergy actually fled to the countryside and they abandoned their posts and the people. But the Puritan pastors actually remained there and they actually began to serve the people and they began to preach to a very hungry spiritual audience and they were with them as they died and died with them as well. And despite the fact that it was illegal for them to preach, they did it anyways because they showed, they believed that faithfulness to God and to Jesus Christ was far more important than any laws that were made that made it illegal for them to do so. It was the courage of such persecuted Christians that led to the growth of the church during this time. And I think it's a great lesson for us right now as well during this COVID-19 time as well. Now I'm reminded of another story of John Rogers, a preacher as well, who was to be executed as well for his Christian faith. And the story basically goes that his wife and like 11 children went with him to the place of his execution and she was holding a nursing baby. And as he was dying and being killed, his children called out to him to encourage him to stand firm and not to give, out his fa- give up on his Christian faith. You're like, how can you do that? How can you do that? How can you watch your dad die? How can you watch a Christian die and still find reason to rejoice even though it's sad? It's because you know where they're going. And the joy comes from knowing that we have an eternal home and an eternal God who will make all things right one day. See, God grew the early Acts church, the Iranian church, the Chinese church through persecution, and He can do so today as well. You know, brothers and sisters, I just want to say to us that 
you know, despite the evil that men intend behind persecution, it's very clear that God has great purposes to use persecution for. Our reward is great in heaven, and for that we can rejoice. Jesus wants us to be motivated to be happy as we think about the reward that awaits us. Now, I know that some people will say, okay, uh, how can you talk about rewards? Isn't rewards kind of selfish to talk about? Shouldn't you just be motivated to do the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing? Isn't it wrong to talk about rewards? And I will say, no. No, I don't think it's wrong to be motivated by rewards that are naturally, as long as they're naturally connected to the things that you do to gain such a reward. For example, I would say, suppose you have a man who says to his fiancée, Sweetheart, I can't wait till the day that we are married. And she looks at him and says, That's so sweet. Like, why? What are you looking forward to? And then he says to her, Because I want to have the joy of not just spending my own money, but yours as well. That's a very bad answer. You shouldn't say that. What's the right answer? The right answer is, sweetheart, I can't wait till we're married so that I can wake up every single day and have the joy of seeing your face in the morning. Now that's a good answer. That's a very good answer. Do you know why the first answer about money is absolutely repulsive to our souls? It's because you and I understand that money is not the natural reward of love. When it's like that, you're just using the person to get something else. See, the second answer is good because the reward of love is intimacy with the person. That's the natural reward, to want to be with them and enjoy them for who they are. See, as Christians, we long for a perfect world where justice and peace and righteousness and, and sin, all these things are gone and there's happiness every day. And one day, we'll get it because Jesus has promised this to us. Now, we're going to enjoy the new Jerusalem with its streets of gold and the heavenly jewels and all that stuff, but that's just like meals and dates to a couple. You know what? We really will enjoy. The real joy of marriage in heaven is not the stuff, but it's a person. In marriage, it's the spouse. And with heaven, it's Jesus Christ. It's Him. We'll finally have Him. We'll have His presence. We'll have intimacy with Him. We'll have joy that never ends as we look at Him. He is our ultimate reward. He is our ultimate joy, our sustenance. See, brothers and sisters, if you're suffering for your Christian faith, your Master wants you to know, take heart and don't give up. Take comfort in the fact that God has massively good purposes for your persecution and it's a privilege for you to imitate your master and it is a sign to you, a signpost that you are heading in the right direction on your way to Zion's land and you will live with him for an eternity. That's the hope for us as Christians. What man means for evil, God intends for good. To bolster you in, his, in your faith and also to spread his gospel around the world. Friends, if you don't know Jesus here today, let me ask you who are listening. Do you have that kind of rock-solid happiness and joy? Or does your joy and your happiness go up and down depending on what goes on in this world? Depending on how much money you make or you get a bad medical diagnosis, where's your joy? Where's your anchor in your life? 
You want real fortitude and the ability to stand up in life and to be able to have absolute confidence when you sail through storms. I'd invite you to turn yourself over to Jesus Christ. Turn your life over to Him. Admit your sins to Him. Admit that you're a sinner and turn to Him for repentance and find that in the midst of your suffering, for His sake, you have a joy that you could never have experienced otherwise. Brothers and sisters, all of you who are listening today, it is an absolute privilege to be able to model our Master to a world that needs to see Him. And may God do us good in the midst of this persecution and give us an otherworldly joy that people around us can see and find ultimately hope in the work and person of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much, God, for your word. Even though there's pain when we suffer, oh God, there's ultimate joy. And I know, Father, that even as we saints grow older and our bodies fail and our hearts grow and our hearts and the eyes grow dim, even then, even still, our hearts, God, grow more eager to see you. And Father, I pray, O oh God, that we would be just like runners who, looking at the finish line, have, can have a burst of energy to continue our sprint there and to finish off well and to know that sweet rest and victory is just around the corner. Father, help us to rejoice in the midst of our afflictions and our pain, knowing that our reward is great in heaven and that we stand in the line of all of those that you looked on with favor, in the godly line of the prophets of old, with our family, as we live for you and honor you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this privilege. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.